Hello and welcome to SouthPod. Two years ago, the World Health Organization warned us about a so-called Disease X, a hypothetical virus which could cause a global pandemic in the future. They said that it posed a high risk to the public and could come from a variety of sources, but most likely it would originate from animals. So is COVID-19 disease X? To discuss this, I'm joined today by Dr. Nizam Damani, a global expert in infection prevention and control. Dr. Damani provides consultancy to numerous international bodies, including the World Health Organization, where he is a member of the Panel and Guideline Development Group on COVID. Um, he's also supported us here in the Southern Trust in our response to the coronavirus. Um, but to be clear, Today, he's not representing any particular organisation. He's giving us his very own personal view as a, a global IPC expert. So, Dr. Damani, you are very welcome. So, as I said, for some time, the World Health Organisation has been warning us about the likely emergence of a new virus, which would pose a threat to global health. So, is COVID-19 disease X? As you know, in February 2018... A panel of experts at WHO put a list of diseases which are going to pose highest public health risk in future. And it actually features various diseases which includes Ebola, SARS, Zika virus, Rift Valley fever, just to name the few. But also it included disease X. Panel predicted disease X which will be caused by pathogen and most likely will be virus, which has never been seen in human. It will emerge from animals in part of the world where people are encroached on the wildlife habitat. So mm -hmm. that was the main thing. And the second thing is that if you look at all the emerging diseases which are happening in the world, they're all zoonotic. That means they're all coming from the animals. So over 75% infection, they're all coming from the animals. Okay. And uh, they also predicted that it will be more deadly than seasonal flu and would spread very quickly between people and beyond continent uh, within weeks, really, of emergence. And uh, that is actually mainly due to travel and the uh, trade network. Now, looking at the COVID at the moment, it actually fit exactly with the picture of disease X. Mm -hmm. Dr. Damani, over recent decades, or certainly in my lifetime, we've seen that epidemics and pandemics are on the rise. Um, I mean, we've already spoken about Ebola and SARS and MERS and maybe avian flu, to, to name but a few. What, what do you think is driving this increase? Okay, so if you look at the... Uh, New and, new and emerging diseases. So the old diseases, as you know, uh, we talked about uh, Ebola and uh, Cameroon Congo fever, which are sort of endemic in, in Southeast Asia and Africa. Then we've got new diseases, which are new and emerging one, which is dengue, chikagonia, MERS, Zika virus, SARS, and the list goes, goes on and on. It is important to note, as I've already highlighted, that most of them, they are zoonotic and they need intermediate hosts. That means, you know, they're the animal source. Mm -hmm. It jumps into some intermediate source and it changes the structure and make it more pathogenic to human. So that's really the progress of, 
of the evolution of virus and how humans are actually getting infected. So in terms of transmission, I think it is very important to understand that viruses and bacteria, they don't have wings and they can't fly and they need a vector or a carrier and the most efficient carrier are humans because unlike bacteria, virus survive within the human cell. So they die very quickly in the environment. So when we are talking of the trade and people are obsessed with boxes and letters and things like that, you know, the survival viruses are very limited because they do not have cell to multiply. And I think the other issue, I think, which is very important, uh, which people have to realize that there is a huge increase in international travel. And we now live in a very globalized economy, especially in the past 10 to 15 years. And uh, that, I think, uh, created and that has uh, been responsible for the spread of viruses because there's a huge amount of traffic in terms of human, but also goods as well. Just to give you an example, in 1950s, we only have about 225 million annual international tourists. If you look at the, by the end of 2019, we have about 1.5 billion people have traveled internationally. So that's actually phenomenal increase in terms of travel. Second factor, I think, which is also very important, especially in low to middle income countries, where there is a population explosion. So for example, in 1950s, the world population was about 2.5 billion. Whereas today, the population is 7.7 billion and rising. So how does this impact in terms of disease? This is very important because most of these people were living in low resource countries. So they are actually coming to the city for jobs and for work as well. And sometimes they are also going out of their own country to somewhere else as well. So what actually happened that these are actually creating situation where the people are living in overcrowded condition and that is very well known to spread diseases. Um, and we have seen also in COVID that area and pockets where the people are very highly concentrated, either in the city or even in the factories, you know, where we have no infection control measure, the cross infections do actually happen. This situation is now further complicated by civil war and famine and those have contributed to mass displacement of people on a global issue, on, on, on a global level, and that has also contributed diseases uh, because they're living in overcrowded conditions, they have left their countries, and the sanitations and the crowding conditions are actually not very well controlled. On top of that, we have other factors. So we've got deforestation, and that is actually bringing humans close to animals. We've got global warming, which is changing the epidemic of infectious diseases. We've got change in agriculture practices, and we have increased demand of protein, which are dry for the animal. So these are all the multiple factors which are responsible for the spread of not only COVID, but also other infectious diseases and the viruses, which I actually see are coming in future as well. It's interesting that you say um, all of these diseases are originating from animals. And I think we all remember bird flu or swine flu. And 
We of course have our annual flu vaccine to protect us from these diseases. But can you explain why why do we have to have a flu jab every year? And I'm wondering then, can you envisage a time that we may also need to add an annual COVID jab? So I think uh, uh, to answer the question at the moment, COVID, as you know, is a new disease. So we are learning and we will not have all the answers at the moment. The virus, which we know a lot, it's influenza. Now, influenza is the most uh, studied virus. And uh, it's the virus for which which produce immunity and antibodies, which are long lasting. So the question people are asking that why we have a flu jab every year when we have lifelong neutralizing antibody immunity. And that actually happened because of the antigenic shift and the drift. So the drift, that means change in a small genomic structure happen in the intermediate host and most of the time they are pigs. So what you have, you've got a poultry, virus is jumped into the pigs and from pigs it becomes pathogenic and transmitted to the human. When this small genomic changes occur, this is what we call a drift. So drift is a small change which happens every year. So therefore we have to have a new vaccine available every year and what actually happened that people actually do the genomic structure and they, they predict what changes will be will be there in, in the following year. So we have to have vaccination every year because the virus is changing, the drifting on a yearly basis. The, the, the shift is the big one which actually happened you know every 30 year, 40 year, 50 year and you've seen that we have got big panic in terms of swine flu. So that was actually major what we call a shift. So shift actually happened every 30, 40 years, 50 years, you know, and then this is what we are actually thinking that when this next big shift is going to happen, because that one, we will have no immunity at all. So this is the reason we have annual vaccination based on the drift, which happened every year. What has made COVID-19 so successful in terms of its transmission compared with, for example, Ebola, which we know whilst it's deadly and it's it's devastating, it, it was contained and controlled. So how does COVID differ from Ebola? So if you look at Ebola and SARS, I mean, SARS-2, which is cause of COVID, these are two dis- distinct class of viruses. Now, it may sound to lay public that what they are, but I think each virus with different class have got different behavior, the way they spread. So let's actually talk about Ebola. People are scared of Ebola, and rightly so as well, because this is a really, really deadly disease with mortality of over 50%. Uh, and it is mainly originated, as you know, and confined um, in Africa. And bats are the main source, and followed by, you know, intermediate hosts are the monkeys. Second thing, the Ebola is transmitted mainly through contact. That means if you have to contact with individuals who are infected, or blood and body secretion of either infected animal or human. The other thing is that Ebola infects healthy individuals irrespective of age and comorbidity. That means, and that's very simple because they don't have immunity. So it's mm-hmm. deadly, infect all age group. Of course, the people who are immunosuppressed or immunocompromised, the infective dose will be low, but the young people and the old Will, are equally affected, which is different than COVID, and we'll come to that in a minute. 
The other issue which is very important that Ebola patient show sign and symptom mainly fever so when we remember when we go to the airport and things like that when we check the fever it is very very effective for Ebola it is not so effective with COVID because the patient may not have fever and still they miss it mm -hmm. and sometimes people can take paracetamol or fever as well so screening through airport and things like that it is more effective in Ebola versus versus COVID where you can have asymptomatic patients. We talk about that in the minute. So that's very important. So, so this th thing about the screening and taking people's temperature, where you see them doing that, you're saying if they take a, a paracetamol to reduce their temperature, how effective then is that screening as a... Yeah, I think two things happen. People have done that, you know, that people want to cross the border and we have seen our experience in Ebola control. People have Gosh. seen that people do actually take a paracetamol and they bypass it. And sometimes people do take paracetamol, they got fever and they want to travel the country. And I think we, we have loads of cases and we have a lot of documentary evidence of that. So the problem I think with Ebola because you have symptoms, we know you, we isolate you, we quarantine you, we contact trace you. Mm -hmm. But Ebola, with, with COVID, the patient who are asymptomatic, they still secrete the virus. They do not have any symptom or maybe mm -hmm. a very mild symptom and then may, may not have a fever. So that's actually major differences, you know, that um, the, the, the symptom and asymptomatic one, and that's why it is more in, in infectious. And the other thing also, which is very important that for Ebola, you know, we are very fortunate that with last outbreak in West Africa, we got vaccine available. And you can see in that, uh, you know, Ebola has been very successfully controlled in DRC, which is in Congo and uh, which is rife with civil war and civil unrest, but it's still WHO managed to control it. And, you know, there are no cases, you know, from, from last week, which is a big achievement. And the third thing, which is very important, remember we talk of international travel. Most of the people don't go to this part of the world because they are not developed from the tourist perspective. And if you look at the Ebola cases we have seen in Europe and America and all other part of the world, they are all all of them, they're linked to travel history, right. all of them, which is not the case with COVID, where, mm. where it originated, the travel history, especially Wuhan province, is the main industrial hub of high-speed trains mm. and, and um, um, aeroplane travel as well. So it spread like wildfire worldwide. So unlike um, Ebola, COVID is less de deadly, but highly, highly infectious, because most of the particles they are in our saliva and the mode of spread is contact and we'll talk about that in a minute and also through respiratory. The other thing is that also COVID is very selective disease unlike Ebola. Remember I told about Ebola which anybody can be infected because they also tend to immunity but COVID is very selective that the 5% patients are asymptomatic that means they don't have symptoms mm -hmm. so it is very difficult to diagnose so it is very highly, highly transmissible. Second issue is up to 90% patients are what we describe as pre-symptomatic. That means these patient or individual, we have very low symptoms. They may have fever, they may have cough, and they may have sore throat and myalgia, loss of sense of smell and things like that. Those are the mild kind of symptoms. So then 5% patients develop real serious illness. Those require hospital admission, and some of them, they require ventilation. So th these are the major uh, differences. But as I've told you, it is very selective virus. That means it affects mainly people who are elderly, who are frail, 
in any individual irrespective of age who got a high comorbidity like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, hypertension and obesity. Now people keep on asking me why obesity because people have to understand that obesity is a chronic inflammatory disease. Mm -hmm. So therefore when you are exposed to virus, the inflammation goes on and actually it makes the whole situation worse. And uh, we talked about it, you know, that the spread, why COVID spread so quickly is just because of the international travel, mm -hmm. you know, versus, you know, China versus African countries. There's a, a lot of controversy and debate um, in the media, even today, uh, about how COVID is transmitted. Um, today, there's a, a discussion around airborne transmission. Um, can you clarify for us, how do you actually catch COVID? So, first of all, I'm very glad you've asked this question. And as you know, this morning, there's a huge uh, debate and controversy in the media. And I want to clarify some of the issue which are totally and utterly misquoted in the media. So let's actually talk logically about the spread. I've already highlighted that uh, COVID, its main route of spread is through contact. That means if I'm talking contaminating all the environment, hand washing is important. Cleaning of environment is important. Respiratory, we talk only of three things. We're talking of cough etiquette, we're talking of social distancing, and that means when I'm talking, most of the droplets which are created, at that time they actually produce droplets. It's only when you produce sneeze, then actually particles are actually much less uh, in size and they spread and, and travel long distance. But most of the particles, they are approximately 5 to 10 or 15 micron, and they fall because of gravity within first three feet. Is that the weight of the droplet? It's the weight of the droplet, okay. number one. If you look at the healthcare setting, if you're actually performing the aerosol generating procedure, then what happens when you do aerosol generating procedure? The secretion which are in our mouth and nose or anywhere else, they turn into very small, tiny particle of less than five micron and they are airborne. So therefore we have to actually wear PPE. But also here, instead of mask, we have to wear respirator. So when we're talking airborne transmission, that's what it's about. But airborne transmission, I think if you look at so airborne transmission is not really the major route of transmission in healthcare setting, unless we are doing aerosol generating procedure, it's mainly contact and droplet. Now, if you look at community, it's the same thing applied that if you're living in this overcrowded condition, you know, it's still when people have a lot of contact, droplet and uh, contact are the major route of transmission. Of course, it is very well known, based on the respiratory viruses, that it, proper ventilation is quite important for the respiratory viruses. Mm -hmm. And if you have it, then that's actually good. But I do not actually believe at this moment, the evidence which is available currently, that airborne transmission is a major route of transmission. However, we need more research. And although people have identified the viruses in the, in, in the air, they're all sort of based on the PCR. We cannot culture the virus, so we really don't know the role of it. So what I'm trying to say is that this area requires further research, but still we believe based on the information we have, it's all contact and it's all respiratory droplets. 
So with so much uncertainty still surrounding this virus, can I ask your view on the current lockdown measures being eased? Do, do you think that a second surge is inevitable or will there be many outbreaks um, as we've seen in Leicester? If you look at United Kingdom, we are still in the first phase of uh, epidemic, uh, which include Leicester and also there are pockets happening, you know, uh, in different parts of United Kingdom. As you know, most recent data suggest that only 5% population in the United Kingdom are exposed to infection. Um, so we basically do not have herd immunity. And even when herd immunity happens, we do not know what is the level of antibody and you know what is the protective level. So we are learning every day. So we do not have herd immunity. And for herd immunity to come, we need at least you know 80% population have to develop herd immunity uh, to, to have some kind of protection. Now, people have to understand that easing down of lockdown measures, I think, are, are, are important, you know, to, to run the economy and everything like that. But the lockdown measures are basically a mitigating measures. So lockdown, when you're talking about lockdown, there are three things. The first thing, we have to keep the social distancing. We have to keep mask, wearing of the non-medical mask and outside if we cannot maintain the social distance and hand hygiene. And lockdown basically are just like putting a foot on a hose pipe temporarily to save the health service worldwide so they would not get flooded with patient of uh, with, with sick patient in the hospital so the health service cannot cope. These measures, as you know, uh, are effective but they are temporary measure and it depends on the individual behavior. So still the, the social distancing, wearing of masks, um, unnecessary uh, touching of individual and the environment are quite important factor. So we have to do the whole thing in, in, in totality. And this actually really behaves on the individual behavior. And because of this lack of herd immunity, the second wave and pockets of mini surge are basically inevitable in the coming months. And this is not true of the United Kingdom, but worldwide. So we have not gone through the first phase. In fact, we have not even achieved peak worldwide. So um, we have more months to go, unfortunately. So this is not a good situation at the moment. So will we really only be able to get back to some sort of normality once a vaccine becomes available? Our eyes on are on the availability of the effect vaccine, which is effective. Now, there are three vaccines, as you know, are on phase three trial. What is phase three trial? The phase one and phase two trial basically looking at the safety and some kind of immunity and efficacy. Phase three trial are the human trial. So there are three vaccines which are moments which are being tested, tried and tested, and hopefully we have got data available by the end of this year. And then of course the issue is the mass production of this vaccine, which is a logistic issue. But also we really don't know whether none of these vaccines will be effective or not. So we will see what the data are. Now, even we actually produce vaccine and cause uh, immunization of individual, we really have to wait for the effectiveness of this vaccine. We have to monitor this individual. Does the vaccine not pro um, provide protection for one month or two months or two years? You know, that we don't know. So I think these are lots of ifs and uh, buts around it. So we don't know how long the antibody will last in various individual. Um, unfortunately, Till we have this vaccine available, we have to continue these measures and that vaccine will not be available 
early part of next year so that's quite important you know so and we are all in for a long haul there's been huge debate and um, I understand some evidence emerging which suggests that black and minority ethnic populations are perhaps more adversely affected by this disease do you think that this is the case Personally, I find this issue requires further investigation, and to me, it is these data that are really puzzling. This is because if you compare the mortality data in the United Kingdom, which is about 650 deaths approximately per million of population, and this is really the second highest in the world at the moment. So we got very high uh, mortality. Now, if you take this data and compare with Southeast Asia, South Asia, especially India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they have got much lower death rate, which is approximately seven per one million of population. Now, I fully understand that uh, because the way you count your deaths, they may not be so accurate, but still the gap is actually quite wide and it is very difficult to explain why. One explanation is that lower mortality in the Southeast Asia is approximately 70% population in these countries are below age of 35. And as you know, there's 35-year age in which people do get the symptom, but the mortality is extremely, extremely low. So that is one explanation. And uh, second issue, I think if you look at the UK population, most of them, they are actually happening in the elderly population, and especially in nursing homes. They're very badly affected in, in our part of the country. Other hypothesis which people are now circulating and pondering that is it the Asian virus is actually less virulent, less pathogenic compared to the European one. And there are two strains of virus people have talked about, S and L. But the data are really, really very limited and that requires further evidence. At this moment, we do not have firm data that one virus is more pathogenic than the other. So we have to wait for it and uh, to see what's happened over there. But at the moment, you know, the data are quite difficult to explain. So just one final question, Dr. Damani. What do you think we need to learn from this experience? Okay, this is a difficult question, but one thing, at least it's certain, that life will not be the same after the end of this pandemic. As a human being, I believe that a lot of us have reflected during lockdown and possibly have to come to conclusion that we have to live in harmony with nature and protect our environment and other living creatures. So that's actually quite important. I firmly believe that if we do not change our behavior, then I'm afraid that the news of emerging of new and old infection will keep on coming. Uh, and most of them, they'll come from the animal source. So I think we have to change our behavior. And I think there's no doubt about it that this virus, and this is, COVID is not one, but there are future viruses will keep on coming and haunting us. That's a stark warning for all of us. Dr. Damani, thank you very much. Thank you.